From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that likes to dish the dirt. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg, and today's title is Dr. Joe Handelsman and Saving Our Soils. Yeah. Hey, Chad. Hey, Mike. So we're in the studio for the first time in three years. So yeah. we're, we're a little bit off our game a little bit here. But yeah. This is literally the first time we've been in this studio really? for three years. Yes. Yeah. I mean, March of 2020, this was like right before the shutdown. And so mm-hmm. we've been doing this by Zoom ever since. So, oh, yeah. So, so it's, it's actually extra. Yeah, we can reach out and poke each other. Yeah. But it's extra special because we also have a special guest. Yes. Dr. Joe Handelsman is joining us today. She's the director of the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's a Vilas Research Professor and Howard Hughes Medical Institute Professor. And she served for three years under President Obama as the Associate Director for Science at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. And so she was here last night to give in very interesting presentation about her work on soils and has agreed to join us today. So thanks for joining us and welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Oh, and I I should also add that you have a book out called A World Without Soil. And I think some of the things we'll talk about today are related to themes in that book. So yeah, welcome. And maybe a good place to start for our listeners is just to describe what are we talking about when we talk about soil. Soil is sometimes called the skin of the earth, Mm. and it's coating most of the earth with a very complex substance that starts with geology. It's rocks from deep down in the earth, and then gets modified by organisms, plants, animals, microbes, a lot of microbial activity, as well as weather and any other forces, physical or chemical, that affect its structure and the mineral content and the chemistry. So the result is what we know of as soil, which is a living substance now. It's no longer just rock. It's pulverized rock and other substances, but then the biology of it is living and breathing and changing all the time. Yeah, so you mentioned something about soils being some of the most what complex or complicated or or diverse habitats on the planet and i think a lot of people if you ask them that question then they would say oh well tropical rainforests or coral reefs or something like that and so what what is it about soils that we should sort of rethink our concept of where biocomplexity is well soil is its physical nature is complex it's uh-huh. not like a lot of other environments like sea water, for example, where if you take two samples a few feet apart, they're, they're pretty similar chemically and physically. But with soil, it's such a heterogeneous mixture. It's like this massive mosaic of different sized particles. So if a microorganism, for example, is on one particle, it may have a completely different environment than a particle nearby. And so you can have, for example, a strict anaerobe that won't grow with oxygen very close to a strict aerobe, one that requires oxygen, because the environment environment varies so much. Hmm. So some of it is the variation in the physical and chemical environment, but then packed into the soil are usually about 10 million to a billion bacteria per gram. Hmm. And among those, those are individual cells, but among those, we estimate somewhere between 5,000 and maybe 50,000 species. So it's a very dense biodiversity, which you measure biodiversity by lots of means, but if you want Mm -hmm. density, then you go to the soil. Okay, yeah, so that's packed into a gram of soil. Wait, so how, so you seem to be saying that we started out with rock, like granite, basically, Mm -hmm. right? And so then you're saying that somehow that the granite is getting broken up, not all the way through, but I guess presumably a top 
top layer of it is broken mm-hmm. up by rain, weather, whatever. In my cartoon of this, I would think of like, okay, well then maybe moss can grow on that because they have very short roots or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is, is that affecting it and, and building it up or how do we get the soil? So granite is only one substrate of soil. Okay. That's one kind of rock. There's also limestone and shale and basalt. There are mm-hmm. many, many different kinds of geologic formations that give rise to soil. That's why we have so many different kinds of soil. And so it may be easiest to think about if if you think about limestone, which is a very, very soft rock that dissolves very easily. And if you've ever seen limestone formations, you can see how water has carved out structures in the limestone. It takes a lot longer for that to happen with granite. So Mm. that's why I say, let's let's talk about the soft, soluble one. And so you can probably imagine that over time, the soil or the rock is being washed and shaped, softened by the water around it, by all sorts of other forces, but one of the first ones is the hydrology, the water flowing through the system. And then there are microbes, they're usually the first colonists, and they start producing all sorts of chemicals, very simple ones, or they acidify, for example, some of them acidify the surface of the rock, and that may change the chemistry of it. Mm. And then eventually plant roots come in, and they actually can physically break the rock. If they grow in a space, in a crack in a rock, the force of their growth against the sides of the rock can actually break the rock. So they're mm. very important contributors to the change. And of course, the biggest factor is time. You know, you don't go from a boulder of granite to soft, fertile soil overnight. That takes a long time. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the reasons soils are so precious is they have been forming over a long time and replenishing them is not that easy. And part of that is because we're dealing with a geologic process. Mm. When you're talking about these microbes, which are some of the first colonists of bare bedrock and they're making these chemicals that excrete out into the surrounding environment. Are those chemicals that they're producing sort of just a byproduct of their metabolism? Is it a pathway that has evolved in some way to alter their surrounding environment that benefits them in some way? I I guess I'm wondering, is this a byproduct or something that has a selective advantage for the organisms doing that thing? Sometimes that question is very hard to answer because if they start the metabolism and it serves some other purpose, like they're Mm -hmm. just eating some substrate that leads to acid production or carbon dioxide production, we don't know if then they have evolved because they produce that substance that has an effect on geologic material. We don't know if they've then evolved around that to adapt. And so then they've evolved other functions that make it look like, so to speak, they need the rock or whatever. But that's what evolution is. We don't often know what comes first and what the benefit was in Mm -hmm. the times when the the selection was occurring. And of course, selection is still occurring. And so the populations are changing as the chemistry and physics of the rocks change. And of course, the biology and the environment is enormously selective as well. So we're kind of leading into the ecology of the system. And so can we maybe broaden out a little bit about soil and its overall general function. I mean, there are some obvious ones of like, that's where plants grow out of. So there's all the mineral components of the soil that plants need. And it's also the organic component, the recycling of organic molecules. And then some of the things from your talk last night were things that I was sort of aware of, but hadn't really thought about as much were the water filtering part and the carbon sequestration pieces of that. Could we talk about those two pieces as one of the ecological functions of soil? Yeah. So most of us would 
wouldn't drink out of a puddle, uh, <laughs> right? That doesn't yeah. sound very appealing. But that same water that is in the puddle over time probably ends up in the groundwater, which means it's percolated down through the soil and probably through bedrock and into the groundwater. And by the time it gets to groundwater and we pump it back up to the surface, it's very drinkable. Mm-hmm. So what happens in the interim? So the, the filtering part is a combination of the physics, the chemistry, and the biology of the soil. And I guess you've heard me say that a couple of times. It is all those properties of the soil that work together to make it the substance that it is. So the physical nature is it will act as a sieve to take large particles out because they just won't be able to get through that network that the soil creates. The chemistry is many, many different compounds will bind to soil particles, either because they have opposite charges or they're somehow other mechanisms make them attractive to each other. Hmm. And then they're taken and they're placed wherever they land in the soil, they stay there. So then the water continues through without those substances. And then the biology is enormously complex because there are microbial communities from the surface to very, very deep in the soil. And those communities change as you go down the soil profile. And so the communities then can degrade certain substances and eat them or Mm -hmm. not and make those go away. And Mm -hmm. so, for example, one of the things we've seen in the last few decades of farming is that we started to see compounds that humans apply to the surface, like atrazine, Mm -hmm. an herbicide, kills weeds, making it to the groundwater. Hmm. And we don't know why that is, but the hypothesis would be that there are fewer organisms that can eat something like atrazine because it was not there when those organisms evolved. In contrast, there are compounds that will immediately be devoured by organisms Mm -hmm. and they often will spit out something that another organism needs and then that carbon or whatever the elements are will stay in that part of the Mm -hmm. soil profile and the water continues on its way. This is something that I think about because I I live outside of town and we have a pasture and we have some donkeys and goats on that pasture and our well house is also in that pasture and so I know for a Mm -hmm. fact that I'm pumping water from directly beneath my pasture Mm -hmm. and I often think about the rainwater that falls on the ground and carries all that stuff into the soil. And yeah, I've thought about like some of those molecules are are passing over animal feces and making their way down. And yeah, that kind of helps me understand. I worry much more about the microbes than the chemicals in that case. Uh Uh, That's why well water should be tested. You you don't want to be drinking water with a lot of E. coli or other potential pathogens. And some well water does have it. It's one of the reasons that well testing is an important thing that unfortunately a lot of well owners don't do, but probably should. And why, you know, municipal water is thought to be safer because it's tested Mm. and often treated to kill microbes. A lot of uh, city water is treated with chlorine. Yeah. The other issue is about the carbon sequestration. And I think people have perhaps heard about conservation of forests or regrowing of forests as a major way to try to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But I also understand that the soil is a repository in in some sense, but can you give us a sense of how large of a repository of carbon it is and what form of carbon are we talking about? Well, the carbon of all the soil across the earth put together contains three times as much carbon as the entire atmosphere. Hmm. That's a lot of carbon. Sure, yeah. It also contains four to five times as much as all the plant life on Earth. So all those forests you talk about, of course, are extremely important for carbon balance. But one of the reasons they're important is because they deposit a lot of their carbon underground and it gets stored there, either in their root systems or outside their root systems. And so plants will photosynthesize. They capture the energy of the sun 
sun and use it for chemical energy and make compounds for themselves from it. But just as importantly, they transport about a third of their carbon that they've gone to all this trouble to fix and put it outside their roots. And on the one hand, you know, face value, that looks kind of wasteful. Why are you doing that? But they're doing it for a very good evolutionary reason. And that's because they've evolved with these communities of microbes around their roots that are very important for their health. And one of the benefits of that is the microbes, in some cases, not all, will eat the carbon and stabilize it in big polymers, large molecules that will stick soil particles together and give the soil its structure. So a combination of the upper part of the plant doing the fixation, the roots storing a lot of carbon, and then also the roots placing a lot of their carbon outside of the root system in the soil. I think initially my uh, cartoon version of this is plants transporting sugars down to their roots for storage. And I had no idea that that much of it leaked out from the roots into the surrounding. And I'm, I'm guessing these are in the forms of like monosaccharides or something like fairly simple sugars. And then my cartoon version was like, that's a pretty easy sugar for bacteria to break down and they're just respiring it and we're back to carbon dioxide again. But it sounds like what you're saying is that other bacteria will actually take that simple form of carbon and make it into larger polymers, I guess, that are more stable. Well, some of the carbon is going initially in polymers out into the soil. Okay. So in addition to sugars and organic acids, there are also large molecules that plants secrete, often called mucilage or Mm. these complex, very viscous secretions. And so those can start as polymers and then the bacteria have to work to break them down into small sugar units or amino acids, depending upon their composition. But then there's a whole food web in the soil. So even though the bacteria may be eating the carbon and are able to turn it to carbon dioxide, that doesn't necessarily mean that's where it goes. They may be emitting some form of carbon that, for example, a fungus could eat. Mm. And then the fungus may store it, or actually fungi are great at producing a protein that is thought to hold soil particles together and stabilize soil. So they also contribute to soil structure and carbon storage. Then there are going to be animals and then plants that will be using pieces of what the bacteria or the fungi have created. So it's a very complex system where a lot of the carbon ends up in the organisms in Mm. soil. And it's not just carbon sitting there. And one of the reasons soil is so dark, and you know, we typically think of a very healthy, rich, organic containing soil as dark. Darker Mm -hmm. is better. And the reason is that the fungi in the soil, some bacteria, mostly fungi, will produce very dark compounds. And they're very closely related to melanin that makes Mm. our skin dark. And so those compounds are long polymers that break down to things like melanin. But those polymers are very difficult to break down. And so those will remain in the soil for a very long time. And yeah, they'll get broken down slowly over time. There just aren't very many organisms that can clip their bonds and break them down. And so that's why over time, the more organic matter you have in a soil, the more the deep brown color accumulates. Hmm. It is interesting to think about this whole system happening underneath our feet that, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't normally think about a lot of stuff going on down there. I mean, obviously, I can picture the roots. Mm -hmm. And until I started doing the podcast, I I would only think of the roots as sucking up the water. (laughs) And now talking with more biologists, I realize, okay, well, they're also, I mean, my cartoon, I guess, would be like, those are sort of the fat cells for getting ready for winter, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't need to eat this piece of cake. So my body's like, okay, well, I'll just tuck that away. We may need that energy later on. (laughs) 
And they need that for, like, we're getting into springtime now, and so mm -hmm. that's how they make their new leaves and all that stuff by mm -hmm. storing all that energy down there. But then, yeah, having fungus down there and having all these other microbes, mm -hmm. and yeah, so there's a lot going on down there that I haven't thought through. Well, and it, it definitely argues for maintaining healthy communities and not doing things up above that percolate mm -hmm. down and snip out parts of this web because you snip out enough pieces and eventually it's going to fall apart or mm -hmm. not be as functional anyway. Yeah. You know, for example, one organism we don't think about a lot, but actually Darwin was very interested in is the earthworm. And it turns out that earthworms eat soil and then they extract nutrients from the organic parts of it. And they will move in their little tunneling. One, they aerate the soil which is great for other organisms, the oxygen can get down to much greater depths if there's good aeration by earthworms. But they will also mix the soil mm -hmm. um, uh, vertically, and that's a really interesting function. And that's just one species or a few species of earthworms. And then you think of all the other animals and microbes that are changing the structure of the soil. And, of course, plant roots are contributing vast amounts of carbon, but then they're also changing the physical structure by tunneling the way they do through the soil. So so every member of the soil community has some function, either in what it produces or who it feeds or how it affects soil structure. Mm -hmm. So one of the themes, I think, of your book is that we are losing soils. So what, what are some of the main culprits that we should be aware of for why soils are disappearing? When we talk about erosion, I think it's important to remember that erosion is a natural process mm -hmm. and has created the world that we inherited in many ways. You know, water has carved out of uh, soil and rock the channels and waterways that we see. That's just one example. But erosion is a natural process that has to occur for the world to geologically evolve. But what has happened is that the soil that was deposited over centuries in the top part of the earth in the first few feet of the earth has become very critical for agriculture. And as agriculture has expanded, more of the land across the earth is being used for it and its soil now has that purpose. The result is we're very dependent upon soil. Agriculture has put an extra stress on soil because one of the things that people discovered was you need a mechanism to get your seeds into the soil and to open up a region where the seeds can germinate and produce roots. And so first people used their hands, then they used planting sticks, eventually they started using spades, and then mm -hmm. eventually the plow came along. Mm -hmm. And the plow, as important as it has been for human history, has done an enormous amount of damage to the soil because it's not just used to break a furrow for the first time. Today, plows are often used throughout the season to control weeds, mm -hmm. at the end of the season to turn the organic matter of the last crop over and into the soil. And all of those purposes are real reasons to plow. Farmers don't do it just because mm -hmm. it's fun. But the side effect of that is that the plowing breaks down soil structure. And if there's any slope in the land, the soil as single particles is much more likely to flow away with water or get lifted by wind and leave that land. Mm -hmm. And single particles obviously are easier to move than big clods of healthy soil that are stuck together with these microbial products. Mm -hmm. So plowing is the first reason that soil has started to move from our agricultural fields to other places. The second one is that we are planting very, very different kinds of plants than evolved on those soils for thousands of years. And we plant these, for the most part, modern agriculture plants 
annual crops, plants that live only one season, and they reproduce by seed, which is planted the next season. And that kind of plant will naturally put more energy into its seed because that's the evolutionary process that it's been selected to reproduce, pass on its genes by producing a seed. Perennial plants are ones that live year after year. They may also produce seed, but they're very dependent upon their root systems mm. to survive from year to year. So the result is that they use some of their energy to produce seed, but a lot of their energy ends up in their roots where they store nutrients for the next season. And then they come up in the spring using some of that stored nutrient. And so those plants have extremely deep root systems, they have long-lived root systems, and they put an awful lot more carbon into those root systems than an annual plant, and particularly the annual plants that we've bred as crops. Because when people started breeding crops, you can barely recognize the wild relatives of many of our food crops mm -hmm. as relatives, and most of our food species don't occur as we see them in the wild. And one of the ways that we've bred them is to produce more of the part that we eat, you know, right. a lot of the, the fruit or the seed. The result is that we have bred out of them the ability to produce these fabulous root systems that some of them may have had in the wild. And so some are actually talking about now breeding for the part of the plant that we don't see mm -hmm. and breeding for large, healthy root systems so that the plants actually do nurture the soil. So the result is that years of plowing and planting plants that don't nourish the soil depletes the soil, reduces the amount of organic matter in the soil. The soil loses its structure because of plowing as well as the lack of organic matter and starts looking more like beach sand or right. clay than like what we think of as a healthy soil. Right. We live in an area where there's a fair bit of agriculture occurring just outside our city borders and it, it would be my guess that a lot of people driving through the countryside would see a freshly plowed field and look at it and think, wow, look look at that healthy soil. I mean, mm -hmm. look how dark and rich it is and, and turned up. And But it, it's actually, it, it's kind of the opposite. It's like... <laughs> This is something that's been denuded of anything growing that's going to help it remain in place and continue to pull nutrients down into it. So, Well, but you hinted at this very quickly of saying like, well, obviously farmers are doing this because it's helping them out. So turning under the organic material that you weren't able to harvest and so forth, mm -hmm. that seems like a smart idea mm -hmm. for the next season. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Originally, plowing was to break new land. And if you think of a wild grassland or a prairie, a very dense planting of plants, it's much harder to get a spade into that soil than into one of those freshly plowed soils that you're talking about. You can't really start farming soil with very heavy soils and dense plantings without some sort of implement to make it easier, and the plow played that role. Okay. So that's initially plows have to be there for the kind of agriculture we have today. Farmers also don't have very many ways of controlling weeds, and when you're doing it in the garden, you can go through and you can hand pull the weeds and you don't damage the soil. But in a large field, obviously that's not feasible. And so many farmers will plow between the rows of crops and turn over the soil as a way of destroying the weeds. Mm. That also is a very necessary part of farming. So it's really a matter of amount. Yes, breaking a furrow is maybe necessary, but that's not going to destroy your soil if it's done once a season. And then other activities are used to strengthen the soil, it may not 
do that much damage. But if there are no cover crops in the winter and the soil is vulnerable to either being removed by wind or water and the soil is plowed many times in a season, some farmers will plow five times a season, mm. then the soil structure is starting to be broken down to single particles rather than clumps. And those single particles are much easier to move by water or wind. In a climate like the Midwest, many of the crops are annuals and when they're harvested, soil is turned over and then the land is left for as much as eight months with no plants on it. And that should never happen. You mm -hmm. should never see bare soil. And if you fly over the middle part of this country, you see a lot of mm -hmm. bare soil in this season as the snow melts. And it's really frightening because that is very vulnerable soil, especially if it's been plowed in the fall. Is this a worsening problem? Or is this a problem where a lot of the damage has been done early and now we're trying to kind of recover from some of the early damage that was done. That varies across the world. Okay. Erosion is happening in every part of the world. Everyone is dealing with it to different degrees. It's very closely related to what our regulations are for agriculture. In the early days after no-till farming was invented, which happened in this country in the 70s, there was legislation that gave farmers incentives not to plow and to have conservation plans for their soil. And if you look at the history, the measurements of soil erosion, they were pretty much going up and that after that legislation farmers had the wherewithal to change their practices and do things like cover crops and putting land into conservation for a while and letting a prairie grow back for a while and then using it again for agriculture. And all of these things were increasing the health of the soil, which in turn reduced the erosion. And then you can imagine that the practices slacked off and there was more soil erosion. And you can mm -hmm. see it's just gone up since then. It's not going up as fast as it was. Uh -huh. So I think there's some movement toward capping it, but it has been rising. But the scary thing is that even the average erosion of five tons per acre per year, which is considered acceptable by the USDA, is 10 times the rate at which the soil is produced. Mm -hmm. So that's not sustainable. Yeah. Five tons an acre. That just seems like a lot. Well, and, and you also had mentioned about the runoff. It was actually interesting this morning. Florida announced that they've got a red algae bloom oh, going on no, right now. Not again. And so <laughs> if you could explain some of the consequences of having so much runoff. Well, the sort of focal point of that in the United States is the Mississippi River, which collects sediment from farms that gets washed into the Mississippi. And they're then all released into the Gulf of Mexico. And and when the soil particles are released, they often will release the nutrients that are bound to them. And of course, the soluble ones can be eaten by organisms in the Gulf. And so the result is that you get these massive algae blooms when the fertilizer and other nutrients get to the Gulf. The algae then sometimes will run out of nutrients or die, and then other organisms will eat them, but then they will be using the oxygen, and the oxygen is depleted in the Gulf. And we now have a 7,900 square mile area of hypoxic water, which means essentially oxygen-free. So essentially a dead zone hmm. in the Gulf of Mexico. And that is the direct result of Midwestern agriculture. Hmm. And so if you were a fish, this would be a part of the Gulf that you couldn't really persist in. Y you would go someplace else yeah. <laughs> or die. Yeah. yeah. So this is all very depressing. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. So what, what are some practices that, that can be done possibly to even build up the soil? 
So that's the goal, is to build the soil, not just stop losing it. But you can build it if you change your practices, and relatively easily, farmers begin to see gains in yields, and they can reduce fertilizer use when they've built the health of the soil. And so one is not to plow, which has its challenges for farmers, because they need different equipment if they're going to drill their seeds rather than plow and drop them in a furrow. The second is to plant a mixture of plants, particularly particularly using strips of plants that are the prairie perennials that generated the great soils of most of the U.S. and use that mixture of perennials to nurture the soil and, you know, over years they will deposit the kind of carbon that was in our soils in the beginning Mm -hmm. that made those soils so great. And then the third is to use cover crops. It is a practice that farmers are familiar with and can practice even with the same equipment that they currently have. So this would be to mitigate the, rather than having eight months of bare soil, soil. plant something during that time just so that there's not runoff during that time. And so then in the spring, some of those crops produce a crop and they can be harvested. Some are just decomposed in the soil. Sometimes they're sprayed with herbicides to kill the plant and then they won't compete with the crop that's being planted. So there are a lot of uses for cover crops. And then the fourth area is use of organic matter like compost compost to enrich the land. And that can be in all sorts of forms. Of course, a lot of farmers in mixed agricultural areas use animal waste to Mm -hmm. enrich the soil. But plant material also can make outstanding compost. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of things that we could be doing. Also, of course, planting things other than agricultural crops, like forests. You know, reforestation is a major means to protect soil. And then mixed plantings, you know, just wild prairies, for example. But unfortunately, with the pressure on farmland and on farmers, it's unlikely that the prairies are going to expand significantly. Yeah, so related to that, that pressure on farmers, are we in a situation where we're sort of stuck with a certain amount of just conventional soil damaging farming just because we're not quite technologically there to be able to feed everybody? Or or is this something that we could truly make a shift towards these practices being mostly widespread? I think the evidence says that it's actually possible to protect the soil pretty quickly. And some of it, it's clear it's hard for farmers. Mm-hmm. We have to make the you know seed drills, for example, either available to them or give no interest loans or have co-ops buy them and share them. I think that we as a society need to take some responsibility for mm-hmm. that because we just can't expect farmers to invest in a massive piece of equipment that many farmers just don't have the wherewithal. The evidence is that the yields can be maintained with good soil practices. The losses can be vastly reduced. And what farmers that have made the switch to more soil protective practices have found is that when their neighbors who use traditional practices are faced with a very heavy rainstorm, their crops are flooded and they often lose the crop. Whereas the farmers that have moved to soil protective strategies, their plants are standing and healthy because Mm. the soil acts as a sponge and sucks up that water. Similarly, in droughts, the soil will hold on to its water longer and be able to feed the plants water more effectively if it's a spongy kind of soil, which means healthy and high in organic matter. So by reducing fertilizer use because the soil is healthier and reducing damage from floods and droughts, it can be extremely profitable to Mm -hmm. make these changes in large-scale agriculture. The challenge for a lot of farmers is getting over the hump and making that change. And that's where I think society could help and 
and provide mm -hmm. financial incentives and support for farmers to make that change. And then once they've done it, it's easier to sustain it, to keep right. going than to go back. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's, that's maybe a hopeful note to end on. Yeah. Yeah, this was really interesting to think through. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for digging dirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for a future episode, or if you have questions you'd like us to address, email us at chriscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>